0: Those of you who are insomniacs to whom people constantly quote Psalm 127 that he gives his beloved sleep will be encouraged to know that there are verses in the Psalms for insomniacs, and we were singing them. And the lesson that we need to learn is to take a balanced view of the whole of Scripture uh, before we discourage people by telling them that uh, the Lord gives His beloved sleep, and that's that. You think I had a bad night last night? <laughs> <laughs> well, we are turning to uh, the second chapter of the book of Proverbs now. Um, we are in a kind of spasmodic series in the uh, book of Proverbs, we spent a long time If I remember, on the first seven verses. And we've moved into this large opening section of the book of Proverbs which is constituted uh, of a series of talks uh, written uh, in order that fathers uh, might give good instruction to their sons. And last time uh, we noted, as it were, that the author steps into the action interrupts the conversation uh, these chapters are all about how to gain wisdom and wisdom comes in the door as it were and uh, puts the father aside and says okay let me speak for a little while and now in chapter 2 we're back to the father and it'd be very helpful for you to follow along if you've got one of the church bibles the readings on page 636 And if you are using the New International Version, uh, I'm reading from the English Standard Version, but I want you to notice if you're you're looking at the New International Version, the subtle difference when we get to verses 11 and 12. And then I will examine you one by one to see whether you've noted the subtle difference. So, let's hear God's Word. My son… If you receive My words and treasure up My commandments with you, making your ear attentive to wisdom and inclining your heart to understanding, yes, if you call out for insight and raise your voice for understanding, if you seek it like silver and search for it as for hidden treasures, then you will understand the fear of the Lord. every good path, for wisdom will come into your heart and knowledge will be pleasant to your soul. Discretion will watch over you, understanding will guard you, delivering you from the way of evil from men of perverted speech, who forsake the paths of righteousness to walk in the ways of darkness, who rejoice in doing evil and delight in the perverseness of evil. men whose paths are crooked and who are devious in their ways. So, you will be delivered from the forbidden woman, from the adulteress with her smooth words, who forsakes the companion of her youth and forgets the covenant of her God. For her house sinks down to death and her paths to the departed, none who go to her, come back, nor do they regain the paths of life. So, you will walk in the way of the good and keep to the paths of the righteous, for the upright will inhabit the land and those with integrity will remain in it, but the wicked will be cut off from the land and the treacherous will be rooted out of it. If you spend your life, as I've spent much of my life, reading old books, I mean books that get up your nose not because of the contents but because there's so much dust on them, and then turn to a contemporary book, visually you will notice a startling difference, a quite startling difference. The difference lies in the length of sentences. A contemporary editor is not likely to allow you to have a sentence that is full of subordinate clauses, and so contemporary writing is simple. Writing from ye olden days is full of compound, complex sentences. The other difference is the length of the paragraphs. In most contemporary books, Christian books as well, a paragraph will consist perhaps of three or four sentences, and so every page will have several paragraphs on it. Ye old books, I have uh, books from a hundred years ago where the paragraphs go on for three, three and a half, four pages the difference is actually significant. Uh, It indicates an understanding that people who produce literature have clearly grasped that our attention span and our ability to handle complex literature has apparently diminished. There are many complex things that we are apparently able to understand like the football scores, like how your computer fouls up, like uh, the number of times the train passes the station. But literature is a very different thing, and it's a very clear signal. Uh, And indeed, if, for example, you go on television to do something that is going to be beamed to the masses, they will tell you that you will have very little time you need to speak simply because people are no longer able to take in much more than sound bites. We do not any longer get our information by digging into books, but by doing Google searches in order to find the answer to the question we are asking without ever discovering that the question we are asking may be the wrong question altogether. And so something is happening in our world that decreases our attention span and diminishes our ability to memorize things. Those of you who are my age remember how you used to know off by heart everyone's phone number, and now if you're anything like me, you have difficulty remembering your own mobile phone number. And you have never known what your house phone number is. And so when we come to a chapter like this, which is incidentally one sentence, it is a bit like a cold shower in the morning. But it also helps us to understand how hard in antiquity, particularly. In the days of the Old Testament and notably in the days of the Lord Jesus and afterwards, people as they sought to educate their children, as they sought to nurture their children, paid tremendous attention to their ability to comprehend and their ability to memorize. Comprehension, understanding what you are hearing, because, of course, this was an oral culture, not a a book culture, not a literary culture. If you'd been a Christian in the first century, you couldn't have afforded the paper and the writing materials to own a copy of the New Testament. This is one of the reasons why the Scriptures are best read out loud even if you're reading them to yourself because they had this tremendous concern that we would hear God's Word, that we would comprehend God's Word, and we would also memorize God's Word so that it would stay with us. So, the Scriptures are not, as it were, a quick fix in the morning, but given to us so that they sink, seep, into our beings become part of us, and so that we, we function every moment of the day directed almost subliminally by the rich store of Scripture that has been embedded into our memory and into our soul. Uh, the one kind of concession that this particular chapter makes to your memory is it's got 22 verses. Just like Psalm 119 has 22 sections because the Hebrew alphabet has 22 letters. And so, you're able to, as you remember it, you're able to know, I've only remembered 21 verses. I need to go back and ask Dad what the missing verse is. Now, what's the point of this disquisition on ancient literature? The point of it is that it's a big thing in the Bible, not that we have opinions, which has very much been the increasing uh, Americanized trend of education, not just that that we have individual opinions, but that we're able to think clearly and to speak well to think clearly, and to speak well. You would be amazed, I think, if you did a study in Scripture of how important it is in Scripture that we learn to speak well as Christians. It's one of the distinguishing features of a Christian in the New Testament is the way he or she speaks. And so, this whole chapter is is alive with the basic principles of rhetoric. Uh, Those of you who went to school with Aristotle, uh, remember his three great principles of speaking well, uh, logos, ethos, and pathos, logos, that you should think clearly. That there should be logic in what you say, that one thing should follow from another. Ethos. That there should be an integration between what you say and what you are. Uh, You know, you sometimes listen to people speak, and uh, you know there is a huge distance between their lips and their lives. And Aristotle picking this up, you could pick this up so evidently from Scripture. Aristotle understood that when we speak, whatever we speak about, but especially when we speak about biblical things, there needs to be clear reasoning, and there needs to be an integration of who we are with what we are saying, or people will think That our lives speak so loudly, they're not able to hear the gospel. And the third element that he uh, emphasized, and, and you find this very much in the book of Proverbs, was pathos. What was that? It meant that when we speak, when we speak logically, when we speak in such a way that there is an integrity of us saying these things because our lives match the message that we speak, then also there, there should be a, a matching of our emotions and the way in which we say things, not just to communicate to people's minds, but to grab people's affections, to grab people's affections. And this is what we found in the book of Proverbs, that these Proverbs are uh, God's truth addressed to the mind but in such a way that their their logic is clothed in, in little stories, little pictures that touch our affections, touch our consciences in order to reach our wills and in order to transform our lives. And this is a particularly fine illustration of that principle, because although it's 22 verses long, uh, the message is is basically twofold. Uh, Point number one is this, that the wisdom of God gives direction to your life, and point number two is that the wisdom of God gives protection to your life. And the marvelous thing, you would have noticed if you caught the difference between what I read and what's in the New International Version, which divides this chapter very clearly at the end of verse 11, verses 1 to 11, verses 12 to 22, divides it right down the middle, and there is an appropriate division right down the middle. But actually what the father does in the course of teaching his son is he He simply weaves the whole thing together. Two sides of the one reality that is created in our lives when the wisdom of God comes to us. And and you'll notice how he does this. And what's interesting here is uh, this is a very long way round of the Father teaching his Son to pray part of the Lord's Prayer. I wonder if you noticed that in these two themes. Thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Deliver us from evil. So, these two parts of this single sentence get to very basic concerns that the Father has for His Son. And and you'll see how this is true. First of all, in verses 1 to 11, the wisdom of God gives direction for our lives. In in the first seven verses, He actually echoes what He's already taught, and uh, He's very emphatic about the Son's need to treasure up the commandments, to listen to wisdom, to incline His heart to understanding, to call out for insight, to raise His voice for understanding, to seek it like silver, which in Old Testament times is often more valuable than gold. Search for it as hidden treasures, and then what? Then you'll understand what I was talking about right at the beginning of the book of Proverbs, son. Then you will understand the fear of the Lord and find the knowledge of God, for the Lord gives wisdom." Now, again, it's so interesting for us to know, this is a father teaching his son. Um, this, would be, this would be a really rare phenomenon in 21st century United Kingdom, wouldn't it, for a dad to sit down beside his son as he's growing up again and again and say, son, these are the really important things in life. And they're not about the profession you're going to enter. They're not going to be about the size of your bank account or how early you should start putting 20 percent of your salary into your pension fund. They're not about whether you're going to be famous or influential. It's all about the kind of character that you're going to have. Now, why does the Father say this? for one simple reason, because the only possession the father has that's going to last for all eternity is his son. Say that again. If I'm a father or a mother, the only possession I have that is going to last for all eternity is my children. Nothing else will last beyond time. And when we put it that way, which is the Bible's perspective on life, when we put it that way, you can understand why the Father wants to give this time to His children and why He wants to teach them these things. Uh, Many of you know uh, some of the writings of Don Carson, Canadian uh, New Testament scholar. Uh, I remember Don saying when he was when he was a young father, his little girl was sitting up in her high chair, and he was going, Mary had a little lamb, and she was, she was trying to memorize it. He would say Mary, she would say Mary, he would say Mary had, she would say Mary had, and then eventually he could say Mary had and she could say little lamb, and then he would, and on he went, and then suddenly it hit him. Here am I spending hours with my beloved daughter teaching her about lambs. And I'm not teaching her God's Word. And vast numbers of parents do this. Vast numbers of Christian parents do this. And my suspicion is that fewer Christian parents tyrannized, tyrannized by the false psychology and anti Christian spirit of the age. Uh, few Christian parents would say, God so. God so loved. God so loved the world. And so, y- you can understand this passage just by reading it. What I, what I want us to see in a way this evening is what it really says in terms of its basic fabric about what is going on in this uh, presumed father's life as he teaches his son that the wisdom of God will give him direction for the whole of his life. Um, and you see, when you remember the fifth commandment, which in some ways is a… Is, I think it's one of God's most generous gifts to us, honor your father and mother. Why do I say it's generous? because when you you know when you're only 4 years old and you can't understand the others you can understand that that if i just if if i have godly parents if i just listen to my mum and dad then all will be well everything else will flow from that but you see the beauty of what's happening here in the book of proverbs is that the father is worthy of that honor there's, there's no point in a father who merits no honor from the way in which he loves and cares for his children. There, there's no point in him yelling, you, God tells you you're supposed to honor me. If a little voice in his own conscience like Jiminy Cricket on his shoulder is saying to him, you are not worth a moment of that child's honor. So, the fifth commandment is a kind of two-edged sword, isn't it? Remember, that's what the Scriptures tell us, a two-edged sword that goes out of the mouth of Jesus. And so, it's important for us as we read a passage like this to understand the inner fabric of what it is that is going on when the Father teaches His children, and in this instance, teaches His sons. And the goal, of course, is to understand and live out the ways of the Lord. And you'll notice there's, a, there's an inner logic to the teaching. It, it's an if-then-so form. Do you see that? My son, if you receive my words, verse 1. Yes, verse 3, if you call out for insight. Yes, verse 4, if you seek it like silver. Then, verse 5, you will understand the fear of the lord then verse 9 you will understand righteousness and justice there is an if and there is a then now what does that mean does that mean if the child is is good enough then eventually he will he will find god's ways we 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 are constantly Uh, reminding ourselves in this church, that is not how the gospel works. How does this if-then work in the life of the child? Um, Perhaps someday uh, during the week you bump into somebody in in town down the road there, and and they're interested in Murray McChain, and they say to you with a strong American accent, do you know where uh, St. Peter's Church is, and what do you say to them? You say, well, if you were in Glasgow, you would say, I was just going there, I'll take you, but this is Dundee where the culture may be different. You say, now, if you go down the hill, if you take a right, if you go on eight blocks and then take another right, if you do that, then St. Peter's will be on the left. If then. Now, what's the logic of this? The logic of this is that without thinking about it, you have worked back from the destination to where they are in order to work forward from where they are to the destination. If you don't know what the destination is, you don't know how to get anyone there. And this is how this if and then works. It is the, the only way to arrive at the protection of wisdom is to go the way that arrives at the protection of wisdom. And you'll see what that way is. It, it is a, it's a way of passionate, listening to, seeking to understand, dig out as treasure, seek for it as silver, finding the knowledge of God, and then in the discovery, and of course the process is a big part of the discovery when it comes to the wisdom of God, then you will discover that the wisdom of God more and more is providing direction for your life. In other words, Wisdom does not come neatly wrapped up in a little box that you can buy in a shop. Wisdom comes by focused, concentrated, disciplined, listening to the voice of God, seeking out, digging up the treasures of the Word of God, and allowing those to seep into the way in which you view the entire universe and the way in which you view your own life and your relationship to others. The wisdom that guides us is not given to us on a plate. If it were given to us on a plate, we would actually never be able to use it in our lives because we we wouldn't know what it really was. And that's why he has all this emphasis on the responsibility that we have. Treasuring up the commandments, making our ear attentive to wisdom, inclining our heart to understanding, calling out for insight, raising our voice for understanding, seeking it like silver, searching for it as for hidden treasures. Then you will understand the fear of the Lord and find the knowledge of God because the Lord gives wisdom. But well, where does He give wisdom? Well, the next statement tells us, from His mouth come knowledge and understanding. And His mouth is, of course, Old Testament shorthand for the Scriptures. Remember Jesus? Man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that comes out of the mouth of God. Jesus, of course, was quoting the Old Testament Scriptures, but He was quoting them in such a way as to make clear that was His own view of the Bible. And fascinatingly, this is what this father is saying. He's saying, now, you, all, this, all this that I'm teaching you, my son, that's coming out of my mouth is only coming out of my mouth because it first came out of the mouth of God it is a huge encouragement to this lad to get to know whatever of the Scriptures was available to him. And when you think of how much more and actually how much clearer the Scriptures are to us, what a word this is to us to dig into God's Word and to treasure it up. Uh, Old John Newton, Um, who was a great hymn writer, of course, uh, uh, and a good preacher, but a phenomenal letter writer, puts it like this. He says, quite simply, if we want the wisdom of God, the chief means of getting it are the holy Scriptures and prayer. One is the fountain of living water, The other is the bucket with which we draw from that fountain. That's the at the end of the day. When you know when when you think of all the books that clutter our shelves to help us to grow as Christians, some of them great, some of them good, some of them not so good, some of them that should never have been published. At the end of the day, it's simple. You treasure up God's Word. You dig into God's Word. This is the father's passion for his son, and he uses all these uh, different ways of describing the truth of God's Word, and he urges his son to get to know the Word of God until it flows through the whole way he thinks and down into his affections and emotions and transforms his character and gives Him direction for life. You know, I think it's true in the life of the Spirit that you always get from God in terms of understanding and wisdom what you want. And if you don't get very much, it's usually because you don't want very much. And that's the danger in a way that the father's warning his son again. These, these verbs that he uses, they're, they're tremendously strong. You know, they're, they're worth just taking out and you know, writing up and sticking on your fridge or on your notice board or in the back of your Bible or on your iPhone or wherever it is, on the back of a, in the back of the book that you take lecture notes down on if people still do that kind of thing. Feel the energy of these words. Because right? we're all looking for quick fixes, aren't we? Ministers included. Just give me the secret. Tell me what the thing is. It's dig into the Scriptures. Now, that, that doesn't sound very exciting. Give me another way. Dig into the Scriptures. No, surely, surely there must be more powerful advice than that. Well, that's… Uh, That's the advice that comes from God's mouth, Um, and uh, you just need to read through the Gospels to see that was advice that Jesus took. Remember that text that we've uh, kind of alluded to a number of times now, Jesus grew in wisdom, and Jesus grew in favor with God. I've said before, if your Jesus did not grow in favor with God, your Jesus is not the same Jesus as we find in the New Testament, because the New Testament says Jesus grew in favor with God. How did he grow in favor with God? Where did this man get this wisdom? I mean, have you ever noticed what abstruse passages of obscure passages of Scripture Jesus throws back at Satan in the wilderness? Bits of Deuteronomy for any sake. Have you noticed the passages of Scripture he he says points to himself? I mean, he, he even knew there was a statement in Zechariah that referred to his crucifixion. Where did it all come from? How did he gain this wisdom? How did he grow in wisdom? You know, I believe many of these godly, righteous ones in the days of Jesus, although there weren't too many of them, may well have known the book of Proverbs off by heart, certainly knew the Psalms off by heart, may have known half their Bible off by heart. I wonder how many times when Jesus was growing up, He was human after all, wasn't He? And he did actually grow in wisdom, and he he grew in favor with God. Those of us who have been fathers you, I remember one of our children, you know, if he said to me, I want the story of Noah again one more time, I would have been jumping into the ocean myself and hoping I would be drowned. I can't bear to tell you the story of Noah again. Don't you think if Jesus was human he might have said to Joseph, Joseph, um, he would never have called him Joseph. That's a very modern way about it. Dad, tell me that bit in Proverbs chapter 2 again, don't you think that happened? You think Jesus made of ice or steel? That when the Bible says he grew, he didn't really grow. It's all just a mask. That that he he came down from heaven as an embryo and he never had to learn anything. That it was never hard work to memorize anything. That it was just all there for Jesus. That the Bible's kidding us when it tells us he was tested in all points as we are and that he learned through what he suffered, and that he submitted his whole life to God's Word? Well, he is the great. He's our Savior, but he's also our great illustration of somebody who was given direction in his life because he treasured up God's Word, and he applied it to the direction that God had set for him. That's why he so often gives indication that he is the suffering servant. And even on the Emmaus Road, once he's resurrected, he doesn't say he doesn't say to, to the two on the Emmaus Road, Hey Paul, forget about your Old Testament. I'm here. He says, No, let me tell you what I learned about myself and my ministry in the pages of the Old Testament. So, what a what a powerful challenge this is to us. What a powerful challenge this is to us to get the Scriptures into our souls in order that the direction of our lives may be a godly one. And as we do so, and this is where the, the English Standard Version it simply flows on between verses 11 and 12 and the And the New International Version has a demarcation line there, starts a new sentence. And that's helpful to us because it gives us a hint we're moving on to another dimension now. And you'll notice that the rest of Proverbs chapter 2 is taken up not so much with the question of the wisdom of God giving direction to our lives, but the wisdom of God bringing protection from evil. Because, as we have seen before, we live in a Genesis 315 world. From the fall and God's covenant mercy to Adam and Eve, there is a perpetual conflict between the seed of the woman and the seed of the serpent, between the kingdom of God and the powers of darkness comes to a consummation in Jesus, comes to a final denouement, as we're told in the book of Revelation, in the casting of the uh, serpent figure into the, the, the devil, the ancient serpent into the burning lake of fire. But until that day, the conflict goes on, and therefore you and I need protection from evil. And here's a father who understands uh, it's, it's part of a father's responsibility to teach his children how they can be protected for God in an evil world. So the father's, the father's very realistic, isn't he? Um, it, I mean, isn't it interesting the number of things that you may not mention now without giving warning to the people that like in divinity faculties, you, you give a warning. I'm going to talk about the crucifixion, and that may upset some of you. It's not going to upset any little fellow who has been through this kind of child training, who has learned from childhood that that this is a glorious world, but it's a fallen world. And there are two ways. And that runs through the whole Bible, doesn't it? There are two ways, and there are only two ways. One of them goes to hell, and the other goes to heaven. But there are only two ways. And if you're on the way that's going to heaven, you need to understand the road that goes to hell will be full of people who want to drag you from that road onto their road." And so the father shows the son how the wisdom of God brings protection from evil. And he gives two illustrations because they're very basic illustrations. The first is an illustration of how the child needs protection from evil men. And you'll notice the language that's used. You'll be delivered from the way of evil from men of perverted speech. Now, this is, this is really interesting, believe me, it's really interesting. Because the, the verb from which uh, th- this language is derived is a verb that means to, to, uh, to put something into reverse, to turn upside down. Um, you remember in Hosea, when Hosea says Ephraim is a, a half-baked cake. What he's saying is that the chef forgot to turn the cake over, and it's, it's been baked on only one side. Uh, when the psalmist says, you have turned my mourning into dancing, it's the idea of such a reversal taking place, a twisting taking place. And here, and this is so interesting, that father would understand God's Word so clearly. Notice that, God's Word so clearly that he would want to encourage his son to understand how important it is to see through the words that people use. And so, he speaks about, about people who, who twist language. who who twist speech, or who use words for a purpose contrary to the very words that they use. And we are actually living in that world. It's a new world in the twenty-first century where the very meaning of words is being transformed. Making words mean something different from what they have always been intended to signify. And that's so important because there's such a connection between words and reality. And you see how the Father does this. eh? He says now, He says, you need to be on your guard, and understanding will guard you and deliver you from the way of evil, from men of perverted speech, because it will enable you to see through what they say. Now, you know, when uh, when I was a little boy, your mum or your dad would say, you know, what? do not take sweeties from men who say nice things to you that you don't know. Why did they say that to you? Because they knew you didn't have the wisdom to see through the words that were being used to the heart from which they were coming. And this, you see, is the great thing about having the Word of God embedded in your soul that you see through the words people use to the motivations that lie behind. You see this very clearly in Jesus. Remember how John tells us, I mean, if you just, if you just heard this out of the blue, you would think, what kind of Savior is that? Jesus did not entrust Himself to people because He knew what they were like. Jesus did not entrust Himself to people. People believed in Jesus, John tells us in John 2, but Jesus saw through the words that they used. And interestingly, the very next chapter gives us an illustration, Nicodemus comes to Jesus by night. Jesus, we know you're a teacher sent from God. Otherwise, you'd never be able to do those things. Are you hearing me, Jesus? I'm a Pharisee telling you we know you've come from God. Jesus completely ignores His words. He says, Nicodemus, unless you're born from above, you'll never even see the kingdom of God. What's the logical connection between Nicodemus' words and Jesus' words. There's no logical connection in terms of how you develop a conversation. It's Jesus saying, Nicodemus, I hear your words, but it's your heart I'm listening to. It's your heart I'm listening to. And you see here… We are sinners, and we have sinful hearts. Our hearts are like those people's hearts to whom Jesus didn't entrust Himself. So we are not in the position of having the perfect discernment of the Lord Jesus. But the Father understands this, and so He says, when someone says anything to you, you need to connect it to other things. And so, he says, well, what about these people? They, they speak these things. How do they live? They forsake the paths of unrightness, uprightness to walk in darkness. What makes them really happy? Has it ever struck you as being so extraordinary that people get stoned out of their heads, wake up in the morning with headaches, And the whole motivation in what they were doing was to have a good time. We're having a great time. Come and have a great time with us. Don't be so prudish. Everybody's doing it. And uh, the Father is saying, just scrape around their lives a wee bit. Is that really a good time? And the amazing thing in our modern world is it's all over the pages of our newspapers, even the quality newspaper I happen to read. It's all over it. It's just all over it, and nobody sees it. Nobody sees it except this little boy would see it because he would ask the right questions what's the lifestyle? What do they rejoice in? Is that real happiness? Think of all these beautiful, beautiful people who have been divorced so many times, and people aspire to that because that would be happiness. No, son, they're rejoicing and doing evil. They delight in the perverseness of evil. They're men whose paths are crooked and they're devious in their ways, so don't trust them an inch is what he's saying. And it doesn't, you know, friends, this is not rocket science. It's something a child can understand. Is their attitude Jesus-like? He was the happiest man who ever lived. The best man who ever lived. What do they rejoice? What gets them really excited and so there's protection in knowing the Word of God because the Word of God improves your spiritual eyesight. The Word of God is in a sense, forgive me for even using this illustration that pops into my mind, it's kryptonite to the Christian and enables the Christian to see through things that otherwise you'll never see through and you'll be taken in. And then he goes on, you'll notice, not only does he say that the wisdom of God will bring protection from the speech of evil men, he'll also bring you protection from the smooth words of adulterous women. Now he's not femalephobic. He's a dad speaking to his son. That's the point. So you see, if all these building blocks are in place, you will be delivered from the forbidden woman, from the adulteress with her smooth words. Something that is ugly and speaks ugly doesn't attract you, it repels you. And so yes, he understands the words of the adulterous woman are smooth, but he says metaphorically look a little closer. See what the real truth of her life is? She is forsaken the companion of her youth and she's a bare faced liar. Incidentally, she stood up one day and she said, I'll have this man and I'll never leave him. How angry so many people would be today if you said, incidentally, you think you're okay, you're a bare faced liar. You stood up and made promises. You're a barefaced faced liar because you've never kept them. That's the truth. That's the real truth of the matter. And she forgets the covenant of her God. And then he says, uh, he says, "Just do a bit digging in the foundations." Look at what he says. Her house sinks down to death. And then he says, "Go round the back of the house." And see where the pathway leads when you've got into the house and you're going out the back door because, of course, you would never go out the front door. Uh, He says, her paths go to the departed, and none who go to her come back, nor do they regain the paths of life. Now, uh, the book of Proverbs does not usually speak in absolute universals. My experience, my experiences, this is the case with people who have come to me and been involved in adultery. And when I've asked them what seems to me to be the crucial question, has the affection been broken? And you know immediately what the answer is, either because there's a very sharp yes that means no, or because there's no answer at all Because once captured, it is, humanly speaking, almost impossible to come out the front door again, destroy your whole life. But the Word of God preserves you from that. I mean, isn't it, isn't it incredible in our world that if anyone stands up and says this kind of thing, hey, you know, it would be a great thing to teach our children sexual purity and sexual abstinence because it's God's way, and it's the best way, and it's the happiest way. All hell would break loose. And if you were a politician, that would be the end of you. But it's God's way. And it doesn't matter whether at the end of the day it means you don't get the job. It doesn't matter at the end of the day that you don't make millions. It doesn't matter at the end of the day that you're not on the TV. It matters that David Robertson's on the TV. Okay, that's understood by us all. But you see the point. You see how what the Father is teaching His Son is divine value systems. And when a father teaches his son divine value systems, the great thing is that when they're written into the heart, what the boy sees when the adulterous woman attracts him with the smooth words, and for that matter it could be the adulterous man, the sexually promiscuous young man in college who attracts you because his smooth words make you feel pretty and wanted and beautiful, and you need this kind of vision to see through it all and find God's protection because God wants you to be as happy and as holy as He can make you in this world. And you see, what this boy learns to do is he sees the adulterous woman And he sees what nobody else sees written over her forehead as one word, forbidden. And he shrugs his shoulders and goes on his way because he's been preserved by the truth. And so, the chapter ends. Yeah, I should only have done half the chapter. I realize that. But the chapter ends with these wonderful words, so you will walk in the way of the good and keep to the paths of the righteous. The upright will inhabit the land. Those with integrity will remain in it. The wicked will be cut off from the land and the treacherous will be rooted out of it. What's he really saying here? Let me just point out one thing because you've been, you, you you have emptied the bank of your patience tonight. Um, in a way, what he's saying is simply this, and it, it's, it's really very beautiful and it's very, very helpful. He's saying, if you walk this way, the people you discover on this road are magic. Don't you go, you know, St. Peter's is St. Peter's, warts <laughs> and all, I mean just look at us. You know, you know. forgive me, but most of us are not the beautiful people. How many times do you go away home and say to one another, I, I absolutely love church. I just love my church. I love these people. No, I know they're not very lovable, but I, can't, I cannot help loving them because they are, by God's grace, your family. And, th- and that's what he's saying. I have to say, that would be my testimony. When I was in the process of becoming a Christian, one of the big things in the mind of a 14-year-old boy was, I am going to lose friends. And I look back now over the intervening years and think of the friends that I've been given. Friend upon friend upon friend upon friend upon friend. Either that or I'm not really seeing the truth about them. Friends to die for. Friends to live with. And as he comes to the end, he says, well, you know, you need to, to the, you need to go to the funerals of successful unbelievers. And compare that with the funerals of unsuccessful, in the eyes of this world, real believers. And you'll get the point that the Father is making. He's saying, at the end of the day, the folks you'll be with will be the greatest. And the loss you will have avoided is actually eternal. Son, it's that important. You can almost hear the boy saying, Dad, that's heavy. And if the dad had fast-forward into the New Testament, he would have been able to say, but Jesus' yoke is easy, and His burden is light, and you will find what they will never find on that road rest for your souls. I think we'd better pray. Our Father, Your Word is full of light and power, but it's also a joy for us to, to dig into it. We pray You would make us more and more uh, like little boys and girls digging into the sand to make sandcastles, loving every minute of it, the challenge of the sand, the, the, the times when things fall down and need to be rebuilt, the joy of seeing the, the waves come in and filling the little moats that we've made because we got such pleasure out of digging and digging and digging. And we pray as we dig into Your Word, we may find similar pleasure and joy, but also the wisdom for the direction of our lives and the wisdom for the protection of our lives. And we pray that You would help us to to search for it in Your Word like silver and to treasure it up, that we may be transformed, become more and more like our dear Lord Jesus, who as our Savior and Lord also must have been such an example of what it means to dig out the treasure. So, we pray in His name. Amen. We're going to sing in closing, Guide Me, O My Great Redeemer. The band will lead us in that. We stand and sing it, and if we can remain standing for the benediction. So the band leading us in Guide Me, O My Great Redeemer.